Welcome uh, again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you chose to join us. Welcome to summer. Uh, kids, youth, college students, hopefully you are enjoying your uh, summer break. We're back to one service. We meet for just one service throughout the summer at 10 o'clock instead of 9 and 11. And uh, it also feels like summer in here. So thank you for, uh, if you came in a little late, we, uh, our AC broke this week. So they promise it'll come back. Uh, by Tuesday, so uh, we'll take heart as we get through today. But anyway, welcome again. Uh, we right now are in the middle of a sermon series going through the New Testament book of Acts. So if you've never read the Bible or you're new to the Bible, Acts comes after Jesus, after Jesus has uh, lived his life, taught, done his miracles, uh, died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected. Acts begins with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, speaking to his disciples and uh, telling them I have overcome the world and I'm now going to send my spirit to uh, empower you and now you're going to spread the gospel this good news that I died for their sins and there's forgiveness and eternal life that comes through faith in me you're going to spread this gospel not just here in Jerusalem where it starts but to Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth and so that's what we're seeing and so in Acts the church is born so Jesus's church his bride his body uh, begins and it's now being spread by the power of the Spirit. It's now being spread throughout the ancient world. So today we're going to look at a passage. We're going to see this guy named Paul. He's got a companion with him named Barnabas. These two guys have been sent out by a church and they're going across the ancient world and they're uh, spreading this gospel. They're teaching this good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. People are converting, they're accepting this gospel, and new churches are being formed, and then they move on to the next church. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that uh, this guy named Paul, uh, kind of the main guy of, of the tour, we kind of zoom in and focus on him this morning. Uh, a big part of what he's doing today is he's going to strengthen the souls of the disciples. So he's going to go to these, these brand new Christians, okay, and he's going to encourage them. And even with some uh, wild, maybe seemingly unencouraging things like you are going to have suffering, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, uh, this is how we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's normal, and it happened to Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So what happened uh, last week was kind of part one to this week's part two. So last week, Paul was, uh, along with Barnabas, but Paul was in the city called Lystra. And what happened was uh, he began to, uh, he, he did a miracle. The people in the city thought that he must be Zeus or Hermes, one of these uh, ancient Greek gods, because he did something miraculous that only the gods can do. And so the people tried to worship them, tried to make sacrifices to them as if they are Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. They preach this sermon saying, we are just men, but let us tell you about the one true God. And then today, we kind of pick it up, today is part two. So the very end of last week's passage said that uh, even with great persuasion, they just barely kept the crowds from worshiping them. They just barely restrained the people from uh, offering sacrifices to them. So that's where we are. That's where we are picking up our passage today. Like I said, we are going to be uh, chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. So feel free to follow along on the screen. Behind me, it's also uh, printed in your worship folder, in that little handout, or you can follow along on your phone or a pew Bible in front of you. All right, so starting in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and 
Iconium. So right there, if you don't know what's going on, there are uh, Jewish people who have not converted that are opponents that are against Paul and Barnabas and their message, and they're coming down from Antioch and Iconium. So if you've been around for the past few weeks, you've, uh, maybe you maybe recognize some of these cities. So Paul and Barnabas were in these cities. Uh, recently, they had preached the gospel. They had started new churches, planted new churches, and they received in every single city great opposition and even persecution. And so they moved on to the next city. But our passage starts off today by saying, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So they left their cities, and uh, I think Antioch is about 100 miles, Iconium is about 40 miles. So these people are so angry, they're, they're so against this uh, good news of Jesus Christ that they're leaving their hometowns, they're traveling 40 to 100 miles, uh, taking work off in order to uh, persecute and uh, attack Paul and Barnabas and their message. We continue on in verse 19. And having persuaded the crowd, so that was the reason that they came, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So these people, these Jews, come from Antioch and Iconium. They incite a mob in order to not just like hold up picket signs and say, don't listen to them, but actually to execute them, to murder Paul and Barnabas. And so to be clear here, when we are saying Paul was stoned, we're not talking about like Snoop Dogg or Cheech and Chong, that kind of stoned, but rather the, the mob is literally taking stones or taking rocks and they are trying to crush a person to death. And so we see this throughout the ancient world. Sadly, even this type of execution happens today, but that is what's going on here. These Jews come in and they incite this crowd and they're breathing murderous threats against them, and they beat Paul. I don't, I, we don't know why Barnabas gets out of this, but they beat Paul. They crush him with these rocks and these stones. He's lying on the ground, drenched in blood. He's so injured that the crowd stops throwing stones. They stop trying to crush him with rocks because they think that he is dead. This murderous crowd uh, beats him so much that they think that they have killed him, and so they drag the, the seemingly lifeless body out side of the city. And if you know Paul's story, if you remember from earlier on in Acts, this was the same guy that did the same thing to the church. If you remember Acts's, uh, Paul's story at the beginning of Acts, this same guy, Paul, was not a Christian at the beginning. He was a Jewish religious leader, and he was fighting against the church, so much so that he was going from city to city, just like these same Jewish leaders are doing here. He would go from city to city, and he would uh, stand by when... Uh, people when Christians would be executed and he'd throw others in prison. And if you remember at the very beginning of Acts, there was uh, the first Christian martyr, the first believer of Jesus to be killed because he was a believer and follower of Jesus, this guy named Stephen. And guess who was at the forefront of that execution, at the forefront of that stoning of Stephen? This same guy, Paul himself. Paul is being stoned just like Stephen, for leading the church and preaching the gospel. Stephen was literally stoned for his faith at the feet of this guy, Paul. And we can only imagine as, as Paul is, is getting pelted and crushed by these rocks and stones that he was having flashbacks of his own past, remembering what he had, what, what he had done and what he had led people to do, feeling the pain that he had caused to so many in the church, now feeling that pain himself. 
We can only imagine Paul remembering Stephen's prayer as he was uh, getting executed, where Stephen prayed to God. He said, forgive these people because they don't know what they do, which also echoed Jesus' prayer. You can imagine that that's going through Paul's mind as he's being crushed with stones as this mob tries to execute him. We continue, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, gathered around Paul, he rose up. So in a resurrection-like experience that reminds us uh, a lot of Jesus' own resurrection himself, these new believers in this city gather around Paul and pray for him. They weep and they cry and they look at this seemingly lifeless, beaten, bloody body and they pray. And whether Paul is miraculously fully healed or whether uh, the prayer just leads him to have enough strength to actually get up, Paul gets up. And what's the first thing that he does, which is pretty crazy to think about? What's the first thing he does? Does he go to a hospital? Does he call down fire and judgment from heaven? Does he demand justice? I'm a Roman citizen. I have done nothing wrong. I am innocent. Yet these people tried to murder me. Does he demand justice? Or does he take a vacation? Does he try to go home? Does he try to get out of here, realizing just how tough this ministry is, these great occupational hazards that come with being a church planter and global missionary here? Or does he just give up on his mission, saying, hey, I've gone through a lot already. People are trying to kill me. They just about killed me. I am out of here. Does he give up on his whole church planting missionary journey? No. What's the first thing Paul does when he gets healed and gets up? He goes right back into that same city that just rejected him. But when the disciples gathered around him, Paul rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to a new city, to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and they had made many converts. So Paul continues his church planting journey. He knows his mission. He knows what God has called him to. And not even a mob that tries and nearly executes him can stop him so they go to a new city they preach the gospel again and more people believe more people are saved from their sins another church has started but even though this is happening right now we still realize paul is probably badly injured and and even if he is completely miraculously healed we know he's got to be incredibly weary from this journey Right? Opposition in every single city he goes to. Abandonment by some of his best friends. Persecution and people constantly trying to murder him. As well as this deep care that he has for all these new converts and all these new churches that he has started. So if you kind of like maps, this kind of helps us see what is going on here. So right now, Paul is here in Derby, and he is very close to his hometown. This is where Paul is from, Tarsus. So this is where he's at right now. He's, he is weary, he is beaten, he is discouraged, and he's very close to his hometown. So he knows his, his journey is, is coming to a close. He could have easily gone back to his hometown, or right down here is Antioch, the city that sent out Paul and Barnabas, the, the sending church that sent Paul and Barnabas to spread the gospel and plant these churches. But instead of Paul going to his hometown to rest and recuperate, instead of taking the short journey and the most direct journey to go back to the city where they were sent from, Paul chooses to do something else. He chooses to go back the same way he came. He chooses to go back into these exact same cities 
that are so against them, they sent people from their cities to other cities to murder him. Paul and Barnabas choose to go back through all these cities the exact same way that they came so that they can strengthen the believers, so that they can encourage these young Christians and these young churches that they had just started. Paul chooses to go back into the heart of persecution and opposition. Paul chooses to return to all these churches and the disciples that he loves deeply in order to strengthen them, encourage them, and to build up these infant church plants. Our passage continues. Verse 21, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, back through these church or back through these cities that they had spent a lot of time. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So I want us to look at three things that we see here in Paul's decision to go back to each one of these churches in order to encourage them. Three things I want us to see and spend a little bit of time unpacking. The first one, which is pretty obvious based on what just happened to Paul, is that ministry and discipleship are brutal. They are brutal. And they're brutal for Paul and Barnabas, right? It's not like these guys are just really horrible at doing discipleship or really horrible at, at uh, discipleship making or, or spreading the gospel. But these guys are empowered by the Spirit, sent off by God, yet they're still going through incredible opposition, persecution, and suffering. And so ministry and discipleship in general are just brutal. We've seen this a ton in Acts so far. We'll continue to see it over and over again throughout the book. But things like discipleship and mission and ministry, church planting, are incredibly hard. They're costly. We've seen a bunch in Acts how spreading of the gospel actually leads to lots of division and opposition and persecution. And we're seeing this again today in our passage. For Paul to continue to minister, to lead, and to strengthen these churches, these young churches that he has helped start, it's going to cost him everything. But he does it. He knows it's worth it. These are human souls with eternal destinies and no amount of difficulty sacrifice opposition persecution none of that is going to keep paul from his mission he knows that christians need encouragement he knows we need our souls to be strengthened we need to be encouraged to continue on in the faith we need to be remembered that tribulation and suffering will come as we christians enter jesus's kingdom Ministry and discipleship are brutal. As I'm saying that, many of you in this room are thinking, yes, that's true. You're nodding your heads. You're saying amen under your breath because you experience this all the time. Whether you're a parent, whether you're leading a ministry here at High Wealth, the church or outside of our church, whether you're discipling someone, whether you're teaching our kids downstairs in kids' ministry, volunteering in youth group, serving as a deacon or an elder, serving behind the scenes without any appreciation or acknowledgement, whether you're leading a community group or whether you're just sharing the gospel with your friends, family, and coworkers, you've experienced this. Ministry and discipleship are tough. They're brutal at times. It's costly. It doesn't always go well. 
It's inconvenient. You're taken advantage of. You're rejected. You're made fun of. People don't listen to you. It costs your time. It costs your resources. It costs your emotions and your comfort and money. Ministry and discipleship are tough. And the often forgotten reality is that we're in a spiritual war for the souls of the people that we're leading, the people that we're caring for, the people that we've been entrusted with by God. Ministry and discipleship can be brutal. This was true for Jesus and his entire ministry. It was true for Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the early church, and it will be true for us as well. Yet, while ministry and discipleship is unbelievably costly, it is worth it. What a meaningful calling that's world-changing and has real and internal significance being someone who does ministry or someone who shares the gospel or someone who is discipling others. As Christians, we're both redeemed ones and sent ones. We're redeemed from sin and death and then out of that, we're sent into the world to share this great news with other people and to encourage them in the gospel, encourage them to continue to believe and to build up the church and to make disciples. What better way to spend our time? Name a better way to spend our money and our resources and our emotions than to build into the church, to spread the gospel, to make disciples. Is there a better thing in this world than to invest our time, talents, and treasures into things that have not just temporal but eternal significance? What is greater than to pour ourselves out into people who have eternal souls and are in need of Jesus Christ and all that he offers? So ministry is tough. Discipleship is brutal. Yet it is worth it. So let us both validate those feelings of how tough it is while at the same time be encouraged that it's worth it and that there's many, 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 many fellow Christians that are doing it as well, and that you're not alone. Second big thing we see in our passage here today is we see Paul's return trip through all these cities in which that he had planted because he desires to encourage the believers to persevere in the faith. It's so important that he doesn't just leave them and go home or go back to ascending city because he wants these new believers, these new churches, to persevere in the faith, to not grow weary, to not give up. And unlike some extreme forms of Christianity that maybe say uh, we only need to worry about conversion, we only need to get people to say a prayer, to repent and believe, and then we just move on to the next, that's not what Paul does. We see his focus on encouraging the believers to persevere in the faith, to continue. Back in verse 21 we read, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they went and they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Wait, that's wrong. There we go. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And like a lot of what we've been seeing in Acts, we're also seeing it in this week's passage as well. Our faith is comprised of attention. Two things that at first may seem like they're at odds. Are we supposed to encourage or are we supposed to persevere in the faith or is God the one that's going to do it? 
So like Paul focuses on encouraging new believers to continue in the faith, to believe, to not give up, to trust in Jesus, he's encouraging them to grow and mature in their faith. And we also see in the passage that God's the one that's behind it. God is the one that's preserving these Christians in their faith, all those who trust in him. Well, it's hard to understand how these two things seemingly that go against each other, it's hard to understand how they go together, how they can work. It is not a both and, it's, it is a both and, and not an either or. So the question, do we persevere in the faith, or does God preserve us in the faith? The answer is, it's both. Our Sproul writes about this. He says, as part of the process of our sanctification, or the process of us maturing in our faith, or becoming more like Christ, perseverance is synergistic work. This means it is a cooperative effort between God and us. We persevere as he preserves. And in just a few verses, we're going to see something similar as uh, we hear that God is the one that's behind all the success that Paul has had in this missionary journey. God's the one that's behind all these converts, all these new churches being started. God is the one behind the gospel spreading. He is the one that opened the door of the gospel going to the Gentiles. It's by his power through the Holy Spirit. It's his plan of salvation that made it happen. And Luke also writes that Paul and Barnabas are commended for the work that they did. In the next sentence, it says that God is the one that did it through them. So relatedly, just like we see God's both behind Paul and Barnabas and their mission and the spread of the gospel, and they're also commended because they're the ones that did it, Similarly, with our perseverance, God is doing the same thing. So he is behind it. He is the one that preserves us, and we continuously remind each other, encourage each other, don't give up. Continue to believe. See the gospel. Believe the gospel. We work tirelessly to bear each other's burdens, to point each other back to our first love. We live as if there is an enemy trying to destroy us and our faith and our church because there is an enemy who's trying to do that. We plead with those who are flirting with churchlessness and gospel-less life, this comfortable life, and we warn them that, the con- that there is a consequence to the path that they're on. And while we do that, while we tirelessly warn people and encourage them to continue, at the same time, we also have hope and confidence that salvation comes from God, as well as being preserved to the end. If our salvation is given, and we do not earn our salvation, we cannot rebel or sin our way out of it as well. We enter God's family through grace alone, through faith alone. So why do we try to stay in that family? By working really hard, by another means than the way that we got in. But rather we stay in God's family through faith, through trust and by grace alone. And because all all of this is true, because we know that God will persevere us to the end if we are believers, that gives us great inspiration. It gives us confidence. It gives us hope and it empowers us. It excites us to not want, want to run away, to not take that grace or that salvation for granted. It's not karma. It's not tipping the scales as if we're saved by grace alone and then now we have to make sure we do enough good in order to stay saved, or as if 
It's some type of karma that we have to do enough good or that we can do enough sins that all of a sudden God's grace doesn't work anymore. This great trust that Paul has that Christ is the one that helps us persevere to the end is how he can both encourage Christians to continue on in the faith and give all of his life to do that. We see him write in in another letter to another church this same thing. In Philippians, he writes back to another church he started, and this is what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who started your salvation, he who saved you by grace alone, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Christian, he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God is both behind the scenes, without us seeing, preserving Christians till the end, as we persevere in the faith together as a church with other believers. And then the third thing we see here is Paul's desire in the New Testament importance of appointing elders in local churches. We see Paul value this so much that he makes sure that this happens. Even though God trusts that the Spirit will continue to persevere and protect and care for these young churches, one of the main things he does is he goes back from church to church to church just a few months after these new churches were born or a few years after they were born. He wants to do this one thing, which is appoint elders in each church. So after he encourages the souls of disciples in each of these places, he also trains up and appoints called and qualified elders in each church. Verse 23, we saw that. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul knows these, these young churches. He loves them deeply. He knows that there's much persecution, that there's a ton of oppression that is going to happen to them and is happening now. He knows that there are false teachers out there and even amidst these churches, we see this in later New Testament letters, that are going to try to persuade and mislead and hurt and poison these young Christians and churches. He knows that they'll still continue to fight against their sinful natures and that they're going to be tempted away from the treasure that is Jesus Christ and his gospel. So before Paul feels good about leaving these churches and going back home, he wants to make sure that they have elders or overseers or pastors. He wants to make sure that these churches will have these Christ-like leaders that will protect them, that will care for them, that will teach them, and that will lead them in each of these local churches. In the New Testament, we see these three words interchangeable, and uh, we use them interchangeably here at Hiawatha as well. So uh, the word elder, which comes up here in our passage, the word pastor, which we commonly use here at Hiawatha as well in America, and then this word overseer as well. All three of these words meaning the same role of leading, protecting, teaching, and shepherding a local church at the highest level. So each of these words more or less synonymous in the New Testament and how we use them here at Hiawatha, yet each one kind of has a different, uh, or speaks to a different part of the role or part of the responsibility. So think about the first word, pastor. This word literally means shepherd. 
So pastors are supposed to care for the sheep, care for the flock. Jesus calls himself the great ultimate shepherd and the church his sheep. And so pastors are to care for and to protect uh, the church. The word elder signifies and reminds us of the importance of, of wisdom and spiritual maturity of those who need, uh, of those who lead the church, that they need to have this wisdom, this spiritual maturity. So just as Jesus is our elder brother, elders within a church are called to mirror Jesus' character, his wisdom, and his protection of the gospel, his fight against false doctrine, and his care for the church. And then finally, the word overseer reminds us or, of the responsibility of, of an elder, of a pastor, to oversee the whole church. While all members of the body are indispensable, elders are responsible for watching over the whole church in many and unique ways. They're on the lookout for people who are hurting. They are watching out for false teachers, for attacks from the enemy, for anti-gospels that are being taught and, and, and pushed. And in general, they are to oversee the whole church, and they are the ones ultimately responsible before God for the health and the care of the church. So a big thing Paul is doing is he's going to each one of these individual churches on his way home, making sure that they are these, these pastors, these elders, these overseers in each local church caring for them. And one thing we see here too is that the ideal, while not always possible, but the ideal is that every local church will have not just a single pastor, which is kind of common here in America, that there's one pastor and he kind of leads and there's maybe a, a board of deacons or something else or a bunch of staff, but rather when possible, the ideal in the New Testament is that there is a plurality of elders, that there's a team of elders. And we see this all over the book of Acts, uh, a dozen places, I think, in the book of Acts, and then all throughout the New Testament letters that remind us of the importance and, and the early church's practice of having a plurality of elders. And although, like I said, it's kind of uncommon in some places in the United States, maybe that's a church background that you're a part of where there just was one single pastor, but rather the New Testament norm is for that there to be a team, a group, a plurality of elder pastor overseers leading a church, some of whom are paid, some of whom uh, lead voluntarily or on a lay level. And this is not just biblical, it's also just really wise. And it brings lots of health to a local church for there not to just be one single person, but rather many. And this can't always happen for, for you know, a few reasons. We planted churches here at Hiawatha, and from day one, some of those churches did not have multiple called and qualified uh, elders. And so for a time, maybe there's just uh, one lead pastor, but the ideal or the goal is to get to having a team. And by God's grace, that has been the history here at our church. He's given us a handful of really great called and qualified men here at our church. And so here we call it the overseer team, made up of both uh, vocational and non-vocational or, or paid and uh, lay-level pastors. So uh, um, Pastor Chris, who's on sabbatical, is there in the middle. And also Peter Carlson, uh, Jesse Splann, and Mark Edwards are, are overseers right now, are on the over team right now. And again, the reason for the importance or why it brings such great health, there's many reasons that Jesus designed his church this way. We'll just hit on a few real quick. 
couple things that it does, having a plurality of elders. First, it shares the burden. It's not just one guy caring for uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, but rather it shares the burden of shepherding, the burden of teaching, the burden of governing and leading and preaching. Also, another thing that it does, which uh, brings great health to our church, is it allows for the church to not just follow one single guy, one single guy who isn't perfect, who isn't Jesus, but rather they can follow a team, which can be really helpful. Then you don't have to necessarily follow one particular elder or pastor who maybe their style is not your favorite, or maybe one person who is, uh, maybe you have a personality conflict with them, or maybe their type of leadership is hard for you to father, follow, but rather it allows for a church to follow a team. And so they're not just submitting to one particular person or following one particular person, but they're able to say, hey, Spencer kind of is not my favorite type of leader, or maybe I don't love his preaching style, or maybe we had some conflict sometime in the past and we've reconciled, but it's hard for me to follow. Maybe that's the case, but if we have a plurality of elders, we're able to uh, individually follow this team and to see God's work through this team. And then thirdly, another great reason that this brings great health uh, to a local church is that it gives accountability. It gives care and support to each individual person. They don't have to be the only Christ figure or leader or pastor in a church. And they as well, each individual elder is submitting and following and is accountable to the team. So just like every member in the church follows the overseer team and submits to their authority and prays for them and listens to their care and accountability, each individual member on the overseer team is doing that to the team as well. So it gives us great health within the local church. So the first thing we see around the New Testament model of appointing elders, first is that it's elders, plural, not just singular. Secondly, we see that elders are appointed. So you might be asking the question, who gets to be an elder? Or who does God make elders? Or who is appointed to be elders in the context of a local church? Should it be the best businessman? Should it be the oldest person in the church since they're called elders? Should it be the most charismatic public speakers? Those who could maybe uh, um, technically be the best preachers or communicators? Or should it be those who have been around the longest? Or maybe those who have the most seniority? Those might be conventional wisdom on who should be appointed as elders or leaders in the church. While it is really important for pastors uh, and overseers of a church to be gifted and uh, good leaders, when you look at what the qualifications are in the New Testament, if you look at the people that are uh, appointed as elders, you see that even though they should be good leaders, what's even more important is that they're uh, qualified and called. First thing, qualified, there's, there's two uh, chapters in the Bible, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, that actually give a list that say that if someone aspires to the role of overseer or elder in a, in a church, it's, it's a good thing that they aspire to it, and this is what they should look like. This is how they should be qualified. If someone is going to lead uh, Christ's church, this is what their life should look like. And although they do need to be good leaders, and they do need to be able to teach the Bible well, if you look at these lists, most of them are just uh, character things. The people that are supposed to be uh, elder overseers in a church are qualified by being godly men by being people who love Jesus and his gospel and his church, people who are 
worthy of being followed or who are respected by others. And kind of the one thing, the one uh, uh, qualification that's, that's less about character and more about ability, or we would even say that the Spirit gifts them, is that they need to be able to teach. Notice again here, if you, if you read these lists, or I just kind of summarize them here, that the, the, the leaders in a church, the, the overseers, pastors, they do not need to be great businessmen, though it's helpful that they're wise. They do not need to be the best or amazing public speakers, though they do need to be able to teach. They're not necessarily the oldest, but they're called to be wise. And they're not the most powerful, though when given power, they should use all of that power and influence for the flourishing of others, for those that God has uh, entrusted to them. So elders, overseers, pastors in a church need to look like Jesus to the church that they are leading. And not only elders who are appointed in a local church, not only should they be qualified, but they should also be called. So while qualifications are very important, the church is Jesus' body. And the church chooses to gift spiritual gifts to whoever he wants. And just like we don't earn our spiritual gifts, just like we don't earn our salvation, we also don't earn the right to become an overseer or an elder within a church solely by just being hardworking or just by being a great business person or by being around for a long time. Often within the church, and we see this throughout the Bible, it's the least expected or it's the, the overlooked or those who are even seen as weak. It's often those people that God calls and then empowers to be able to lead and to care for the church. And we're going to see this actually in, in a few chapters when we look uh, a little bit, yeah, chapter 20 in Acts. We're going to see this in a little bit. Paul writes back to a church and listen to how he talks to these particular elders. He addresses these elders within a church and this is what he says. He says, elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, so all the Christians within a church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So God himself is the one who calls and appoints and makes qualified men into overseers in his church to image and to lead like Jesus. So if everything has been given by grace, everything has been gifted to us, everything good that we have, then it makes sense that this office, this role within the church of elder is for those that he's not just equipped, but that are also qualified and called. So you might just be wondering, so, so how does this play out? Or how does this look at Hiawatha Church? Maybe you come from a different church background, or maybe you've been around Hiawatha for a while, but you're just wondering, how does this actually play out? This is so important to us. We, uh, it's even in our, our bylaws as a church, so this won't change. This is how church, or Hiawatha Church, is led and how it is uh, governed. In our bylaws, we, we state this. We say, the overseer team uh, will consist of elders who will be ultimately responsible for the welfare and spiritual direction of Hiawatha Church. They will direct matters of overall vision of the church, keep spiritually attuned to how the Holy Spirit is leading Hiawatha, devote themselves to keeping Hiawatha theologically pure and culturally, culturally relevant, handle matters of church discipline, visit the sick, teach when appropriate, and be upholders of this church in prayer. 
So that's what overseers do biblically, New Testament-wise, as well as what they do here at our church. And since in our passage we're seeing overseers being appointed in a local church, you also might be wondering, so what's the process here? How are elders appointed? How are new overseers trained up in our church? And so just a few things. I, I can answer many more questions if you have them later, but to summarize, it's actually quite a, a rigorous and length, lengthy process that we believe the Holy Spirit uses to help us identify, train, equip, and appoint men who are called and qualified to lead our church as elders. So we go through a, a lengthy process that takes anywhere from six to 24 months, maybe even longer, where we go through detailed uh, sentence by sentence in our elder statement of faith, this long 13-page uh, document that we have that outlines everything that we believe as a church um, and make sure that they're not only fully on board, but they also are passionate about it, that they, that they can teach it, that they want to encourage others uh, in our doctrine and theology, as well as things like our philosophy of ministry. We want to know that uh, these, these guys um, are passionate about the way that we do church. They're not coming in wanting to change things or, or turn or shift the way we do things as a church and that they're bought into just the, our philosophy of ministry and the ways we do things. Things like being apolitical as a church or things like being missional or things like intentionally wanting to have a Sunday morning that is welcoming others and tries to make uh, or remove as many roadblocks or barriers as possible. And so we go through these times, we spend hours and hours and hours over months and months and months getting to know this person, making sure that they are already pastor-like, that they already are caring for people and leading within our church, asking many pointed questions, making sure that they're qualified and spending uh, many, many, many hours praying with them, making sure that they are also called, that this is something that they are being called to do. And if that person is married, we talk with their spouse as well, make sure that she's fully on board and thinks that this is what her husband is called to do. And like the Bible, the New Testament speaks of, we try to be slower in this process, to not uh, bring on an elder quickly, which 1 Timothy 5 warns against. And so after this, we go through this whole process, then we bring it to the whole church, and we say, hey, we are confident that this person is both called and qualified, yet we want to hear from the church as well. And so over a period of a month plus, we let the church know of an elder candidate, someone we we as a current team think is called and qualified, just in case we miss something, just in case there are questions or concerns from people within our church. And then from that point, it goes to um, the, the membership of the church voting on confirming or bringing this person on, uh, on to our overseer team. So that's the process. Uh, if you have more questions, more details, we'd love to talk to you more about that. But since this comes up in detail here in our passage today, we wanted to... Uh, answer some of the questions you were maybe thinking about right away. But as we uh, begin to wrap up here, pray for your pray for Hiawatha's uh, overseer team. Pray for our elders, our pastors. Pray that God would continue to empower us, that he would convict us of sin that's in our life, that he would speak to us, that he would help us as a team to lead and to pray and to care for and to teach well and to serve Hiawatha Church for God's glory and not for our own. And maybe especially this summer as one of our uh, elders, as our lead pastor uh, is on sabbatical all summer, that God would sustain us as we care for our church 
this summer. We, would, uh, we love your prayers. We, we need your prayers, and we thank you for those. All right, to wrap up our passage, wrap up Acts 14. So Paul and Barnabas choose to not run back to their hometown, so to the church that sent them, but they choose to go through oppression and hard work and more persecution in order to strengthen up young believers and young churches and to appoint elders in every local church. And as they travel back to this church that initially sent them out, they continue to speak the gospel wherever God brings them, wherever the Spirit brings them. Acts 14 ends like this. Verse 24 says, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, the original city that sent them out, from where they had been commended to the grace of God for their work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So finally, after months and months and months and months, Paul and Barnabas returned to the church that has sent them out. And they tell the disciples in the church in Antioch, in Syria, of all that God has done, all the conversions that have happened, all the miracles that have happened, all the churches that have been started, as well as about the persecutions and the trials that they have faced. They report back to their sending church, this, this church that went through huge sacrifices to send them out. They report back to this church about how their sacrifices were used by God to spread the gospel and how a door was opened to the Gentiles who are just like them. So this church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas out to spread the gospel and God chooses to spread the gospel among not just Jews but among many, many Gentile people just like this sending church. And Paul and Barnabas encouraged the believers there, reminding them that it was worth it. The sacrifice they went through to send their spiritual mentors to send their money, to send their resources, to say goodbye to those that they loved was worth it, that God used that. The end of chapter 14 of Acts reminds us, many of us, us as a church as well as many of us individually, that we're not alone in having to sacrifice for the gospel to be spread. That we have to say goodbye to people we love and give our, 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 our money and our resources and our leaders, just like the church in Antioch, in order to plant churches and to make disciples both locally and globally. We're encouraged that it wasn't, or it's not just us that go through the pain and the, the costliness of spreading the gospel. It might not be what we'd prefer to do, but it's worth it. And churches throughout history have done the exact same thing. It's normal for churches to sacrifice their relationships, their leaders, their time, their resources, their money, in order to spread the gospel. In real and powerful and tangible and eternal ways, the Spirit uses not just the church in Antioch, but also Hiawatha Church to spread the gospel. Through our global missionaries, through our church plants, through our supported ministries here in the city and across the globe, more and more are being saved from their sins. They're being reconciled to God. They're being adopted into a spiritual family that will care for them and bring them hope and love and perseverance to the end. A few things as we leave here today. To be reminded of, first, ministry and discipleship are brutal. That's just the reality. But let us be encouraged 
that it is worth it. As many of us go into a season of rest, for many of us, our ministry slows down over the summer. Not completely, but hopefully there's a bit of rest for you. Be encouraged to know that what you experienced this past school year, the toughness, the costliness, that's normal. And it is worth it. Also, let us be reminded as a church that God is the one that is going to persevere us, to preserve us. Take, take hope that God is the one that's going to keep you close to him, that you cannot sin yourself or doubt yourself out of his love for you. And at the same time, we're encouraged, don't give up. Encourage each other. Don't give up in the faith. It's going to be hard. You're going to have doubts, but don't give up. And then finally, let's thank God that Jesus planned and created and designed his church with leaders, with elders and overseers, pastors that care for us. Let us pray for them as well as thank God for this gift that he gives us, that he gives us spiritual leadership and protection and people whose job it is to teach us and to care for us and to look out for us and to chase us down when the enemy or sin is beating us down and making us forget about Jesus and his gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news that comes via narrative in